episode 335 of RPG Fans Retro Encounter, uh, where we usually cover slightly older game titles and special topics. Today is one of those times we're going to be covering a special topic that's extremely near and dear to my heart, gaming accessibility. Uh, you'll notice I am not the inimitable Mike Slosey. I'm Hilary Andrew, uh, and I have the privilege of hosting this episode because this, it kind of intersects with my work a little bit as an occupational therapist. Um, and this is a topic I've kind of been researching for a while, so I'm very excited. And I have a panel with me today, uh, and that is Wes Island. Hey, everybody. And Lucy Gray. hey And all of us together, we're going to be discussing what gaming accessibility is, some games, how to find good information about it, and some topics of particular interest within gaming accessibility. And I'm very, very excited to have you all here today. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks um, for having us. All right. So first question, I'm very curious about what drew you to this episode? Well, particularly for me as a special education teacher in my day job, Working with accessibility is always something that I'm having to do on a daily basis for students who have learning uh, needs as well as just kids who need that ad additional support. And it's really interesting for me about oftentimes things that I think should be normalized. People look at me as if I have three heads about, and it's really rare to hear people talk about it specifically in gaming when there's such this big push about immersive gaming and keeping us all within the worlds and there's so many easy ways for us to do that with accessibility that we're not really talking about and for me uh it's kind of per it's like personal to me you know it's it's something that i take um because i've had you know a litany of accessibility needs over the course of my life um color blindness has always been a big one because a lot of games just you know aren't designed with it in mind and the ones that are, are few and far between and even some of those don't quite do it perfectly but um, take that for for mental health needs uh, ADHD or um, you know depression anxiety what kinds of things can help those needs um, you know different stages of life how that affects your, your needs for a video game um, as well as just you know poor vision like poor vision alone uh, especially if you don't have access to proper health care for it, it can make a huge impact on whether or not you can experience something. Um, and, you know, as I got interested in this, I saw so many accessibility advocates online and just kind of went deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. Well, great. I am definitely looking forward into delving into the details as well. <clears throat> so first, let's start off by just kind of broadly talking about what gaming accessibility is. Um, and I kind of have a little spiel that I like to say about it, um, especially because there can be some misconceptions about what it is, right? Um, so I want to clear the air and say that gaming accessibility, it's, it's not simply lowering the difficulty or making games easy. Um, accessibility is really about specific changes that make a game playable by the largest number of people possible, right? And that can involve hardware, and software, one or both. And it greatly depends on the game itself and the style of gameplay. And as we'll kind of go into and talk about a little bit more later, like there are design choices that you can make too 
um, that impact the accessibility. Um, and some recent examples um, of you know particularly accessible games that a lot of people enjoy um, are The Last of Us 2 and the new Ratchet and Clank games. They have a load of features um, and things that they've done. Publishers like Naughty Dog and Insomniac, uh, they take this very seriously. And they built in a lot of extra time in their development cycles to, uh, in the case of Last of Us 2, have a very specialized team of adaptive gamers test the entire game and give feedback. Um, and in the case of Ratchet and Clank, you know, they took the time and tested a wide variety of features that allow you to move and access all the different features of the game. Uh, in a variety of different ways. So yeah, it's it's a good thing to be talking about. And uh, some exciting news, RPGs, especially if they're turn-based, uh, are generally considered a more accessible genre of game, generally speaking, depending on like the, again, the type of accessibility that you are thinking about. Um, they're typically a little easier, like for motor accessibility, for sure. Um, but in terms of like, and we'll get into this as well, you know, vision or cognitive accessibility, it might be a little bit different. So accessibility isn't one size fits all, you know, there are different kinds of lenses you can look at it through. So it's all about making the game uh, comprehensible and playable for as many people as possible. And that's the end of my spiel. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good spiel it's a very good spiel <laughs> but I'd love to hear more about like if you'd have anything you'd add to the definition or you know personal touches like please go ahead well I mean you really did do a really nice job of touching on the fact that accessible is not going to look the same for everyone there are a myriad of different uh hurdles that are people are trying to get over in order to be able to access games and that can look like very simple uh things that we can do for a game and then there are things that may not be something that immediately comes to your eye and may not you may not think is all that important because you don't deal with it but is very important to somebody else you might not even be aware of it yep in fact one of the big things that I have to deal with, uh, which also happens a lot in gaming, um, is that there are twenty up to 20% of the uh, population worldwide who are dyslexic in some form or another. But on average, only 4.5% of those people are ever formally diagnosed. So there are a lot of people who don't even realize that they have these difficulties and don't realize how much these things can help until they're offered to them. It's amazing how sometimes just needing something helps you to almost, I don't want to say self-diagnose, but at least get the idea that, oh, every time I load this up, I load up these accessibility options and I enjoy the game more. I wonder if that has any meaning to it. Right. That's why I think, you know, as you said, everyone's needs are different. And much like when you're talking about inclusivity and, and trying to get a diverse group working on a game, it's kind of the exact same with accessibility. You want people with a, a range of different um, accessibility needs, either on the dev team or as you know, people that you hire as consultants. Um, and that's going to make sure that 
even if your heart is in the right place, it's very possible to make accessibility options that aren't doing what you intend them to. So having people who actually need those accessibility options review them is huge. Definitely. And one thing I'd like to add, like, like I, I don't want to speak for anyone, but like I was um, chatting with uh, a colleague that I did a panel with recently about accessible gaming and she's um, she has a bunch of accommodations that she uses and she streams and the biggest thing for her she told me we were kind of chatting about like what's what are some of the most important things to know about accessible gaming and she said just like the most important thing is the ability to actually play these games and be involved and be able to play them and chat with people and the social aspect as well. Stream, you know, that's like, that's a whole other layer of accessibility if you are playing and then streaming on top of that. Uh, but yeah, so just the fact that it can really make an impact when people have this access. And it's been it's so interesting how media has portrayed accessibility. Um, one thing that just comes to mind is it was made fun of and sort of made this like, how can they put this in a game? Uh, the game grounder uh, grounded from a couple of years ago where they put in a arachnophobia slider uh -huh. in their game. And it was only when they met this came out that people said, actually, that's a really big thing for me in games. I can't deal with this. And they're and always spider enemies. <laughs> yes. And the fact that it, had such a range that could it affects so many people and it didn't break the game at all. It right. really it's started. A choice. <laughs> it's a choice, but it also made people start feeling like, oh, if we can have this in a game, what else can we have? I love hearing about this kind of like new ways people are thinking about accessibility like that. You know, again, like like you said, Lucy, it kind of fits into that. Like, you might not be thinking about it actively, but suddenly there's a whole group of people that are like, "Well, I can play this game now. I would have been terrified before, but now I can actually do it." And talking to uh, recently, what was it? Two, three years ago, we went to a panel um, where PBS Kids was talking about the games that they offered on their website. And they talked about all these different things that they did to try and make their games accessible. And the hardest thing for them was getting the word out about these accessibility options. Yeah, that's an important consideration too. Like if you're offering them, how do you make sure that the people that need them know about it? Mm -hmm. So that's important too especially when these things are provided in updates after the fact, uh, which is the case in a lot of these where they just realize, oh, this isn't usable let, by, by a large portion of people. Let's fix that up after the fact. Um, those aren't going to get you know, hyped up on the big trailers, on, on the big stages necessarily. It's not something that um, casual fans are, are going to find if they've already started playing the game and given up um, due to these needs. It's It's really hard when you're not given a lot of focus in marketing, especially um, for, for showing off like what accessibility options are out there. Mm -hmm. Right. I get so excited when, when, you know, 
they do get the floor to kind of like go through those. I was so excited when like the Ratchet and Clank accessibility discussion was like a big thing at the Game Awards. That was awesome. It's good to celebrate those too, just to show other people like, hey, you'll get praise if you do this too. <laughs> Motivation. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that also gets me thinking of some examples where uh, things that really should have been fixed, uh, to my knowledge as of right now, aren't. I'm immediately thinking of a uh, cyberpunk and the fact that they have some sequences that are meant to kind of like approximate a seizure. So kind of be for lack of a better word, disorienting and kind of trippy um, that really were a problem for people who actually had issues with being epileptic. And to my knowledge, that's something they haven't really fixed to this point. So that and as well as the response when people came out about the fact that that was in the game, it was sort mm -hmm. of like, well, if you have this, why are you playing it? Well, people want to be able to play games. It's not something that we have to necessarily be self-censoring for because this is just our daily lives. It's not something that we can control. Yeah, and I mean, it is extremely tricky because there are some some things and I'll get to this when I'm like going to talk about one of my favorite games. Unfortunately, it, it is very much a, like we're going to make this the best that we possibly can. Sometimes you can't accommodate absolutely everything based on like the type of game you're making. Um, but the, there's, I feel there's still a responsibility to do as much as you can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's not about necessarily making it playable for everyone, but as you said, making it playable for the largest number of people possible. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right. So are we ready to get into like some of our favorite features of games? Like our favorite accessibility Holy. features? Okay. Um, so here is my <laughs> like base basic list of like key points you want to address if you want to make your game basically accessible to a wide audience. Um, and those things are readable text, subtitles, colorblind modes and accommodations, clear, customizable difficulty settings that are more descriptive than just easy, medium, or hard, um, menu narration and audio prompts, and skippable quick time events. And I know we'll kind of, do we want to just kind of take those one by one quickly? Yeah, it sounds sure. like a good plan. Yep. Yeah. So readable text, I mean, I'm someone who really likes their narration heavy games. Um, and, you know, I'm sure a wide variety of people out there too. So let's make sure people with a variety of, you know, vision acuity and, and needs can actually read that narration. Not only that, but also just audio processing. For a lot of people, when there is a heavy visual stimulation as well as audio going on, they're not going to be able to process both. And being able to have that text in front of you makes it easier for you to be able to capture what the narration is wanting you to capture. Right. Or if you need to be able to like read along to follow, if you just process 
well visually like even that can be helpful yeah plus you know it's so important to have that text be readable for for a wide range of people um this was a real problem around the turn of like the hd age when all of a sudden everyone had all this extra space so they made the subtitles extra tiny um, and anyone with visual (laughs) issues just couldn't read uh the subtitles on there um that drew me nuts and as far as I know, like my vision is in the normal range. And even then I'm like squinting and vision, visual strain is real. Well, not, not only that, you often had text like gray text on black boxes. So it suddenly became super difficult to be yeah. able to discern the text just even on those larger TVs because right. it was less... Um, contrasted and it was really yep. difficult so that is a very important point readable text does not just mean the font or the size it also means the level of contrast right mm-hmm. high contrast is better if you have less acute vision um but also uh backgrounds that's the other thing i want to mention uh there's a visual skill called figure ground um that some some people have issues with like and all of us, it's a little harder to read something if you've got like a bunch of textures or a bunch of other visual things in the background with something you're trying to read. Yeah. One of the big things with uh, uh, dyslexia or uh, just uh, keeping track of the words on a page or on your screen, one of the simplest things that I can do is hold a piece of paper or a highlighter tool up to separate out the lines. And when you have text squished together or has background behind it, you're making it so much harder to just keep your focus on that line of text. This is one of those things that's really well served by customization as well. Um, I, I think Guardians of the Galaxy did this pretty well in a lot of ways where you could customize the font sizes. You could customize whether it was like closed caption style or just subtitles. Uh, the one that hit me was uh, it has different colors for like the speaker name. If you have the speaker name enabled um, per per character, but some of those character speaker names are were almost invisible to my my colorblind self. Yeah. So oh, no. you could actually turn those colors off in the option setting. There's just they tried to think about as many people as possible um, and gave the controls so that okay. If you want it to like be gone or look colorful or whatever, and you can engage with that, we will do that. We're not going to force that. Right. Like if, if it's more, if the thing that you need is to be able to have the colors to distinguish the speakers, then you can do that. But if the color is difficult for you to see, you can also not have it. That's great. It makes me think of, some of those games that when a serious piece of narration is going on, the background sort of disappears and it's just the text on the screen. And it. some people complain that, oh, it takes you out of it. And it's like, no, it doesn't. It makes it easier for you to see. And it makes it easier for you to realize that this is something important going on, which can also be difficult if you are uh, have certain sensory needs that are that make it really difficult to focus on specific uh, words or text when you've got so much going on on the screen. Yeah. I mean, it kind of, it helps focus your attention no matter who you are. And same thing, like everything we've been saying about readable text, like 
that's an accessibility feature that pretty much everyone benefits from. Yeah. There's been this recent push in games where they want to be using these really fancy texts to show off uh, sort of different time periods. And it's well and good, but at the same time, being able to change that text too to something more readable is a really easy fix that helps so many people. Mm-hmm. I love uh, some of me some medieval games, but I do not want to be reading gothic texts for any length yes. of time. <laughs> I was I was so happy when I fired up Lupira recently, and it has you know a nice high contrast HD text that should be relatively readable as well as the pixel font. And it starts you in the highly readable one so that if you do need to, you know, use that, you don't have to try to navigate through menus in the pixel font to get to it. Oh, just good. Let us turn fonts on and off. (laughs) Give us the most readable one to start. It's great. Right. And if you want to go a different way, like if you want to go with the pixel font, that's fine. But by allowing for that readable choice first, you're you are letting so many more people like enjoy the game. And another important thing about readability is the uh, fact that some games now make it a point of highlighting important text so that for those who get overwhelmed when they're given a block of text to read that doesn't necessarily have narration built in, you're still able to pick out those really important pieces of information and not get overwhelmed and go, I can't read all of this. Oh God, what am I missing? Yeah. I, I know we talked about a little bit about this before recording, but I'm, I'm thinking all the way back to, ocarina of time i mean yes it was just a bunch of different colors but that was an early example of highlighting important information Mm -hmm. to help your like memory and your recall and just cognitively help you along yep and since then a lot of games have kind of hopped on that train too Mm -hmm. um you started seeing it more and more in like the, the ps2 era especially yeah. Um, that's what everyone was starting to catch on, it seems like. Definitely. All right. So the next component is, and there, there are kind of a lot of different versions of this, and I think I'm going to let Wes take, take the lead on this, but colorblind modes and accommodations. Yeah, this is a surprisingly broad one because, uh, again, there are, uh, you, you kind of think of it a lot of times if you know much about colorblindness as three different types of colorblindness, but really... There's variants and gradations of each one. No two colorblind eyes are going to be um, exactly the same, um, which means it's very easy to to make a mistake in how you're offering these colorblind accessibility options. Because if all you have is a filter you throw over everything in the game, well, for one, we're already colorblind. We're used to seeing the world in a certain way. It's kind of uncanny to see that um, that shader over it when you know this isn't how it's supposed to look. And two it might not match you perfectly. Um, your your type of colorblindness might not be one that they thought to build in, or it might be more extreme or less extreme, um, which can make it really difficult to get invested in a game. And it's it's rough because this is one of the more common ways that we've seen it lately. Um, luckily, it's not all bad news. There are plenty of people who... Um, I, I recently fired up Returnal, and they have the different loot rarities that drop. Um, 
but they have several different options for the loot colors that you can you can choose so that if you can't tell the difference between a couple okay cycle through until you find one that you can pick out what each different color is um things like that are wonderful or uh, like the witcher patched in um the red witcher sense trails were impossible for me to see i could not play that game without my wife next to me telling me where, where to go when i was trying to track something um they saw oh, that wow. they realized it and they patched in um high contrast colors that you can you can switch to and that that made the game playable for me <laughs> even even most recently uh project triangle strategy and in their initial demo they had uh Blue showed where you could move, and purple showed where you might be in danger, where you might be attacked. Uh, and again, for someone like me, those two were the same color. Um, but they added sim- symbology to them um, in the full version. Didn't even like mention that they'd done it, but it made such a huge difference. Right, and that's a really, really uh, important way that you can also kind of like make things a little bit more colorblind friendly. Uh, multimodal and multi-sensory cues for things so Mm -hmm. if there's something where it's really hard to fix the colors you can add a symbol you can add a sound just something to so that you can tell the difference yeah try to engage at least you know in two different ways um or you can go all in like outer worlds did and just design the whole game ui and grayscale uh before you add any color um that, that was one of the more impressive efforts that I've seen. That's um, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Made it super easy. I felt, you know, I was, I was welcoming that the whole time. <laughs> I still need to, I need, still need to try Outer Worlds. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's got good options for, for accessibility and for inclusivity, which are both really nice. No, I was just thinking about, when you talked about the multiple uh, ways of designating important areas, it makes me think back of when rumble packs suddenly became a thing in games and suddenly it became so much easier for me who has a tendency to get overwhelmed with a lot of information on the screen. Um, Recently I was playing the, uh, uh, new uh, version of Legend of Mana on my Switch. And the fact that I could get that little bit of sensory feedback back every time I hit a monster made it so much easier for me to tra- keep track. Oh, am I actually doing damage? Am I actually able to... F- uh, am I actually doing something? Rather than trying to find these multiple tiny health bars that are floating through the screen. Hmm. Yeah, that's huge and it hits... The exact same points, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Haptic feedback. It's amazing how much these things that got like, oh yeah, it's a rumble pack, and they sort of got made fun of. <laughs> and there's the '90s commercial with a kid with like with the windswept hair, like Wah. yes. And yet <laughs> they can be used to be the simplest way of bringing more people into your game. And it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be a rumble pack. I mean, there are plenty of indie games that are on Steam that just have multiple different symbols of ways of saying, hey, this is something important. You probably want to take a look at it. Um, I think of uh, Persona, where for some of the really important things, if you walked up to it, your character would go, oh, this is this, and have that 
both an audio prompt as well as a little text prompt to tell you what this is and if it's something that you can inter interact with. Yeah, that was a game changer when games started doing that, I gotta say. <laughs> mm -hmm. And again, that's another feature that probably helps a large number of people, like even more, and maybe many of us aren't even aware of how much it helps us. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to actually tack on to this a little bit, uh, but clear customizable difficulty settings, not just easy to uh, an easy to hard continuum that's explained in like a sentence. That's really important. Um, just kind of on a fundamental level, because we all enjoy the unique challenges that games offer us, right? Like mm -hmm. you like the sense of accomplishment when you do something that's difficult, but you just are able to do it and then you get to tell everyone. Um, and like, that's the kind of experience you want to have, whether you are using accessibility features or not, right? You want that in, in the occupational therapy world, like we call that grading or the just right challenge. You, you want to be engaged enough so that you are learning, you feel challenged, but you're not overwhelmed or frustrated. You're not throwing your controller around. Mm -hmm. Lord knows I've done that enough. <laughs> I mean, one particularly great way that it's been done recently has, once again, Persona having that in the beginning of the game, it offers you a couple of different options on how to play the game. And it doesn't say necessarily easy, medium, or hard. It says, this is the mode that if you are more interested in learning the story to play, if you're more interested in having a game where you're primarily working on grinding to beat difficult monsters you're probably going to want to choose this one and it's not make it punishing somebody for wanting to be more vested in a story or doesn't have a need to be overly challenged um for me you know particularly as somebody who has suffered lifelong from adhd I get frustrated easily when a game tries and throws you right into a battle and doesn't necessarily explain anything. And you're going, wait, what am I supposed to do? Oh God, no, I, I want to be focused on the story. I don't necessarily want to be uh, dealing with a uh, random encounter, not the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The podcast is great. Yes. <laughs> And that's, that's absolutely uh, true. And not only that, it, it opens it up to different types of players as well as, you know, different capabilities of players. And it's yes. even better when either of those difficulty levels are doing exactly what you said and not aiming at, you know, a specific difficulty or trying to shame you for doing the quote unquote easier one. It's mm -hmm. here are specific situations that these difficulties are good for. Um, yeah, uh, that's an excellent point the way you the way you frame options is extremely important it's very easy to to essentially be gearing people to not take the easier option even um or or you know just a different option than the default um, right 
Yeah. I mean, Even though many, it might give them a better experience. Yeah. I mean, how many times, I mean, I can speak for myself. How many times have I looked at that choice at the beginning of a game and gone like, well, I don't want to like, I don't want to limit myself. Mm-hmm. You know, the way you, it's easy to frame some of those options in a limiting way, but by saying something like this, by giving, it's it's almost framing it in a positive way. You know, this is good for this. This is good for the story. This is good for, you know, practicing those mechanics and doing those difficult fights. Yeah, it's really, really difficult when, uh, for somebody to get vested in a game when the first option you're given mocks you for wanting to have something other than ultra hard mode. I mean, one of the biggest concerns that I have is that, particularly uh, teaching students, there's occasional times that kids will mock each other for playing a game in baby mode. And using this kind of language not only makes kids more frustrated with a game because if they're not playing it this right way, they're considered not being actually playing it at all. But it's also mocking those people who would be more interested in having it more to their comfort level. Or just to make the parts of the game that they are interested in Mm-hmm. more prominent like the story yeah yeah and you know that that is almost tailor-made this is a, a minor dovetail but i think very related um one of the accessibility ne- needs that i have is you know being a parent so it means sometimes i need to drop everything it means i don't always have the most time to play and if i'm grinding for long periods of time you know that's time i'm not getting back and i might never finish that game as a result so you know, when I get options, like the ability to pause a game is absolutely huge and essential to me um, for any number of reasons and can be essential to other people for any number of other reasons. You know, mm-hmm. if you have asthma, it's nice to be able to pause to, hit, to take your inhaler or, um, you know. Right. Maybe, maybe uh, instead of saying easy mode, maybe we could start calling it you have a life mode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it does again, we have to be careful of the language yes. around it. Yes. But it also makes me think of the uh, fact that one of the things almost always now when older games get ported into uh, Nintendo Switch or other games, we're suddenly seeing autosave become a routine upgrade to these games where, yeah, you can grind and you can go, oh, I gotta go do something, and that's gonna get a chocobo sound. <laughs> I'm okay with the chocobo sound. Uh, yes, teachers curse. Deal with it. Uh, but the fact that for a lot of people, it they need to take a break from playing these very stimulating games for a variety of different reasons and being able to let them pause and get back to something and not necessarily it's yes, you can pause, but it's not going to save the game. So if you turn this off uh, for any reasons, you have to replay everything. Yeah, And sometimes the stimulation itself is the thing that they need a break from. I mean, exactly. there are plenty of, of conditions that you know, overstimulation will 
genuinely bother you. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those people might start playing the game and never finish it. And stuff like that happens to me all the time. Um, And when they give me options, uh, one of my favorite ones was Xenoblade Chronicles 2. I was bummed that it was DLC, uh, part of their their paid DLC. But um, they gave you difficulty modes where you could tweak absolutely everything about you know, your characters and the enemy, you know, you can increase HP, decrease HP, increase, you know, aggressiveness, attack, defense, all that stuff. Great. Um, Yeah. So that's an example of like specific ways in which you can change the difficulty rather than just being like easy, difficult. And and that was perfect. It was, you know, with, with my schedule, I didn't have time to play the game at its normal speed because normal encounters can take you a hot minute in Xenoblade Chronicles 2. Surprise, surprise. Um, so I just cut everyone's HP in half and all of a sudden I'm getting a very similar experience, mm-hmm. but um, it's, it's a lot easier to move forward and I'm not going to drop this at some point. Hillary, you mentioned before we started recording, one of the games uh, you had been playing had um, adjusting modes of difficulty. Oh, dynamic. Yeah. So the thing I mentioned, and that's a great kind of like rev up to this section. Uh, one way that some recent games have kind of accommodated for this is like, is adjustable difficulty, dynamic difficulty. So if a game notices that you're struggling with a certain segment or something, it will automatically adjust some of those factors similar to kind of what Wes was just talking about. It might like take the enemy's life down a little bit or, you know, maybe make some hitboxes larger or for accuracy, you know, if you're having trouble like platforming, that kind of thing. And I know there are, there's, there's a collection of, of them recently that have done this. And I mean, even outside of RPGs, most of the recent Mega Man collections have versions that'll just like throw, th- throw uh, platforms over the pits. You can't, you know, just fall out of nowhere anymore. Mm-hmm. And instantly that becomes more accessible to a huge group of people. Actually, a game I was thinking of is uh, Legend of Mana. When you're in the underworld, uh, there's a part of the game where you're having to uh, avoid the demons because if you hit a demon, you get sent back to the start. But if you keep failing, the number of demons decrease. So eventually you're going to get through while still making it seem like you're still going through this trial to get through the game. Mm -hmm. And that's an old game and this is not a new feature for it no so like if and that's another good point to make i think about accessibility in general is like uh, developers have kind of been thinking about some of these things for a long while whether they've been totally aware or not they've been doing some of these things no that that can even date the the first example i saw in an interview um which i know isn't probably the first one ever but um Something as big as, in, as Dragon Quest, you know, the the reason one of the reasons it stands out in Japan is because anyone can play it, and that's been a goal from the get go. And when asked what is the lever that you pull to make it accessible, and the answer is just leveling. You can level up to surpass anything. If you can't get through it with skill, you can level up and get through the game. Um, it's not perfect accessibility, but it is interesting to think of core game mechanics as just a lever you can pull to make the game possible for a group of people who otherwise wouldn't be Mm -hmm. able to. Um, And just to kind of like tack on to difficulty settings, like um, 
one thing I kind of want to add before we go back to, well, actually we already sort of addressed narration. We're kind of skipping all over the place here, but that's okay. Um, one thing I kind of wanted to add that's not exactly related, but um, inputs. Um, it's incredibly important that like along with these difficulty settings, you have a way for players to change their input settings, um, which actually is why uh, PC is kind of a popular platform for a lot of accessible gaming is because it's very easy to kind of remap controls and inputs mm -hmm. on a PC. Um, but, you know, just in case some, some of these settings aren't working and you need further, usually kind of physical accommodations, um, you have to be able to remap the controls to use something like the Xbox adaptive controller, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like, that's a prerequisite for, in my opinion, like something that you, you should have for like a basic level of accessibility. It's just the potential to add those things as needed. I mean, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I have smaller than average hands. And when the original Xbox controller came out, I was so frustrated because I could not reach all the buttons on the uh, controller. And it made me hate Xbox for a very long time. And they've really started to learn from that. And Microsoft as a corporation, um, no matter what you think of it, has been making some really big strides on re doing remapping and offering these options of making games have different inputs that people can use in order to be able to play them. I feel like that's the one I see most common from a lot of the accessibility advocates I see as table stakes. You got to be able to remap the controller. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. This next point kind of is in the same category, skippable quick time events. Oh boy. Yes. I appreciate them. Uh, the idea behind it is that quick time events can be challenging for a variety of reasons, whether that's, um, you do kind of struggle with motor planning and stuff like that. And that timing is just very difficult or there's too much going on and you're overstimulated and it's hard to parse out um, the information, the sensory information in time to do the, the button press or, you know, maybe your processing speed just isn't quite up to it as those get more and more challenging. There's well, and so you also many... you also lose a lot of control when it becomes a quick time event, right? And for somebody who one of the games that frustrated me to no end as um, a young adult gaming um, Final Fantasy VIII with its myriad quick time events and the fact that you had to be very uh, careful on how to be able to skip them. Because you might lose a whole bunch of really important information if it, you hit the wrong button. And it's like, I, what? Huh? What just happened? You know, what I've really liked seeing lately is not just skippable quick time events, but configurable quick time events. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because, you know, ever since the PS2 era, it became this big thing where you want to open a door, it's time to mash the R2 button for <laughs> a while. Um, <laughs> And nowadays, though, I'm seeing more and more, not you know, you have the option not only to turn them off or to make them more lenient or to have like fewer of them. 
you also see some where it's like, okay, switch these to straight button presses instead of having to tap because a lot of people just don't have the motor skills to mash a button. They change it to a hold. Yeah. You're still getting that experience. You're, you don't have to opt out of the entire game to be able to match your accessibility needs, which mm -hmm. is huge. Like part of accessibility should absolutely be allowing them to experience as much of the game as possible yes. and just tailor things to what they need. Yeah. And I mean, if that, again, it, it should be, that should definitely be a choice. Like some people might decide, eh, I don't care if it's a press or a hold. Like I, this is not the part of the game that interests me. Or, you know, yes, I want that experience, but I need something that, you know, is a, a, the right kind of input that I'll be able to do for the right level of challenge. I mean, one of the biggest issues that I've seen people, like, if I ask them, what's the quickest way to get you to put down a game? It's the stealth mission. <laughs> Because that requires a lot of control that for a lot of people is not possible. I f fully admit that, again, I have smaller hands. I have a tendency to be not as great with some of my fine motor skills that those sneak missions will, without fail, make me incredibly frustrated and I need to put the game down because... You have to be the constantly hyper-focused, which I can't always necessarily give a game. And that's so much worse, I feel like, in, in RPGs, because RPGs are so often accessible. And you've been playing this game for, for a while where, you know, even if you don't have the skills required, you can grind through it. And then all of a sudden, here's a uh, a single failure and you're, you're booted out of the minigame. Try again, like stealth sections often are. And, I mean, that's that's going to change the algebra for a lot of different types of players. Mm -hmm. I mean, you talk to a lot of people about Breath of the Wild, one of the biggest recognized games of the Nintendo Switch, and without fail, they're going to complain about the high uh, um, uh, hideout and that stupid stealth mission where, without fail... You couldn't grind through it. There was no... They made the bosses so hard during that stealth mission because they wanted you to stealth that a lot of that accessibility that was available in this open world game suddenly went out the window. Yeah, and that is when some sort of scaling or some sort of options to kind of change the inputs might be extremely helpful because you, you might not immediately want to go to like asking for help which is actually also becoming an option, you know, with, with things like Xbox Copilot. But, you know, you might not want to go all the way to that direction. You might want to try it to the best of your ability on your own. You should be able to. Mm -hmm. And it's another place where customization can, can come into play. I've seen a few games with difficulty options specifically for stealth, where it's like, okay, we'll narrow their lines of vision uh, if you select this option or... You know, we'll, we'll make sound not be a factor if you choose this one. And hey, if people do like the stealth missions, but just can't do them um, for whatever reason, or aren't able to or don't want to, here you go. Here, here's a way to do them without having to use those same skills that you just cannot or will not engage with. Yeah. And this is the part where I admit I, I flail. I get like... I think I have maybe some sort of like sensory thing with stealth missions myself because I 
it sends my anxiety through the roof. So like, oh, me too. It keeps like building up to the point where like I kind of lose some of my motor control. So what inevitable, what inevitably ends up happening is like I'll get a good chunk of the way through, and I'll be so excited about being close that I'll like hold an input for too long or something, mm-hmm. <laughs> like lose some of that fine motor control, and then I've got to try it a bunch of times. <laughs> Well, full disclosure for me, I have anxiety-based ADHD. So the more anxious I am, the more likely I'm going to have being unable to control certain uh, hand motions. And that's, again, something that normally I can, particularly in RPGs, account for. I can put the game down. I can take a moment. Not in those gosh darn stealth missions. (laughs) You know, something that... that often hits you know my my similar <laughs> feelings on in that same way is when you throw a time limit on something yeah if i have a running <laughs> timer up there <laughs> forget it <laughs> or, or even something like you know a lightning returns uh there's this timer over the entire game it is so easy to it's it's the most forgiving timer in the universe just having that sends my anxiety into a like disaster zone <laughs> i i i have heard RPG fan colleagues like talking about that exact thing recently, just seeing the timer. Actually, Valkyrie profiled too, and that's like a game long, like, and you control kind of like how fast that time passes because you spend a certain amount of time, like, and it tells you how much you're going to spend before you do it, but still, like, just seeing that countdown. Hillary, I think you would remember my most frustrating moment of my favorite game of all time, Final Fantasy VI. Oh, Lord. The floating continent. Knew exactly where you were going. (laughs) Um, She was getting so frustrated with the timer. I was there that I was afraid to take the time and stop to tell her the very important thing you need to do at the end of the floating continent. And the second half of the game, I'm going, when is this certain event going to happen? When is this certain event going to happen? She's had to eventually break it to me. Well, because you, you were so fr- frustrated with the floating continent. <laughs> and you left before you should have. <laughs> oh. oh, that's classic. Yep. <laughs> and it changed you the whole game. <laughs> it, it does change the whole game. It took me three playthroughs to eventually get to the point where I was like, okay, I've got this. But it... That's also another game which, unfortunately, you could not autosave. You could not uh, save during those timer parts so that suddenly you're so much more anxious and you're so much more overwhelmed. There's a long long tradition of those timers, actually, when you think about it. Yes. And I hate them. Lord, I hate them. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've had like a great discussion so far and touched on a bunch of things. So I'd like to go into some resources near the end. But before I do that, I want to make sure, have we covered pretty much everything that you all would like to discuss? I want to open the floor. Like if anyone has any topics that they want to discuss more in, in depth, we can just kind of take turns and, and go ahead and do that. Well, one thing that I would love to mention that I see rare, uh, on occasion, not as much as I would like to. Uh, one of the games that I know does this really well is Etrian Odyssey, but that's a dialogue history. 
I particularly with my ADHD and uh, my dyslexia occasionally can't remember certain details and being able to go back and being able to have those dialogue prompts, some of them in the later Etranodyses are fully voiced. So I don't have to necessarily be trying to read all of them um, to be able to have it go back and go, oh, hey, this is the information that I was looking for. And being able to have that information accessible is something really important for me. And I know it's for oh, a lot of people who don't feel comfortable trying to write down all the different pieces of dialogue because one of the common symptoms that I have with my ADHD is that I go, oh, I'm going to remember that. And I do not remember it. Well, not to mention, like, if you, uh, the expectation of being able to, like, continuously write while you're playing like that, again, that's adding another task to an already very, like, complicated task that you're doing just by playing a game. And talking about that audio is something that has recently become more and more common with games as we're getting more and more space available for games. Um, but for so many of the students I work with, when I ask them what's their favorite game, they'll often name a game that has full audio for all of the uh, characters. And that's because their reading levels aren't necessarily going to allow them to access giant walls of text, but they can hear it perfectly fine. And that's one of those simple accessibility options that they can have that really is useful for such a large po uh, part of the population and makes the game such more, so more accessible for a lot of people. Right. And, and again, like, even if it's not something that you absolutely, absolutely need, it's still have, being able to listen rather than read, like, can still decrease the cognitive load for someone and maybe keep them going with a game that they might otherwise drop. I fully admit one of the biggest disappointments for this was Persona 5 when they said, yes, we have full dialogue in the game. And I was like, yes. Well, what they didn't mention was the full dialogue meant that they read the first line of a character's dialogue. They didn't read the whole dialogue. And that made me a little bit frustrated because with some Persona games, I get a little overwhelmed and I will close my eyes during the game if, if I can to hear to better audio process. And for me, that sometimes that's easier than reading the text on the screen and touting this full dialogue when it isn't actually made me a little more frustrated with the game going in than I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes you don't want to take the time to read everything out loud yourself and give everyone silly voices. I mean, sometimes you just don't have time for that. And sometimes you do. Face the rest away. Oh gosh. Oof. That 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 was Lucy giving uh, a character in Shadow Hearts a really silly voice. Fantastic. <laughs> I read huge blocks of text because at the time I was not the one playing the game, so I could. And actually... She was helping me actually like get through and process by like by reading lines and. There, there's a part where like the villain is disguised as a Shiba Inu 
Sheena Inubu puppy. Yes. I know this part. <laughs> yeah, and that was the voice she chose for that character at that time. It's beautiful. Well, and then it was the, when I started reading it out loud, and then I had to stick to the bit for the <laughs> yep. entire game. It hurt my um, voice. You've committed. But, but <laughs> I so committed. When he, so when this villain was his normal self, like it was still that voice. Um, but anyway, that is fun. Probably not practically useful. So, that, so that's a reason why like full audio, or at least the option for full audio is good. And, then, and you, it, it's not always possible, but when it can be, it's really useful. And, you know, the other thing that I found that I'm really impressed with that goes like right hand in hand with it is, you know, when you have menu narration, uh, the, the the most recent time that I've seen this in, implemented in a really thoughtful way um, is, and to go parent mode for a second here, I've got two pretty young kids, uh, which means I see a lot of Among Us and Minecraft. Those are the, <laughs> the games <laughs> of kids, Mike, <laughs> their, their age. Um, but whenever they fire up a Minecraft game, including like when we've played Minecraft Dungeons before, the first thing that pops up is a small accessibility options menu. The very first accessibility option is screen narration, and it's turned on by default, which is so friendly to people that need that screen narration, that, yes. that menu narration that, hey, we're going to give you this from the get go. The other people don't need it. They can see to turn it off. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, what a friendly introduction that is mm -hmm. uh, to an accessibility option. That and the sliders for being it, how loud the music is while oh, characters yeah. are talking. Such a useful, simple thing that I absolutely, that's the first thing I go to when I pop up the menu. It's like, mm -hmm. I like the music, but in this particular game, it's going to drive me nuts. So I'm going to slide it down. Or um, I need to be able to hear the characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, there, there's... Wow, I almost I almost want to say there's no excuse for just one master volume slider. Um, but uh. And you know, sometimes those these are accessibility options that then become useful for the general population. Mm -hmm. I know one of the things that people love to do is make fun of those uh, as seen on TV commercials uh, where the you've got the overly clumsy people doing things. But it turns out a lot of those things that were originally developed to be for people who had a specific need. And a lot of these accessibility options in games can be really helpful for somebody with accessibility needs, but they can also be really useful for, say, somebody who does not want their uh, game swearing at full volume when they've got uh, um, friends in the other rooms or young children or that they've got a particular game that they want to play and they want to be able to uh, hear the voices, but they don't want the really overly joyous music distracting somebody else. Yeah, uh, and I think that actually is something that we really should like go back and put in the general, like what is gaming accessibility? It really ends up benefiting everyone down mm -hmm. the line. A lot of people don't realize they need it until it's accessible for them. Why don't we pick a few? Uh, I know, Wes, you already mentioned some, but why don't we pick a few? And Lucy, you did too. Uh, games that we like that are kind of considered accessible. And I'll go first because I really want to mention The Veil. 
the veil is an extremely cool concept because it is designed to be completely visually accessible, um, which means that you you can play it basically without being able to see, um, which is really, really neat. So that means it does rely heavily on audio, um, which is a problem if that's also a need of yours. But you, you know, it immediately comes in with that like menu narration, right? Narration of all the text and dialogue, um, haptic feedback. If you've got a controller, it uses haptic feedback. You pretty much have to play with headphones because it relies on binaural audio. Um, the whole premise of the game is that your character um, is basically blind. And so the screen that you're often seeing is just kind of like different motes of like light in different colors. And you have to navigate by sound and by haptic feedback. So it's, it's really such a brilliant idea. Yeah. It's really, and the story is great because the whole idea is you are, I think you're basically, you're royalty. Um, but you were sort of sent as Princess Alex, you were sent kind of to the outskirts of the kingdom, but something bad happens. You get ambushed and you have to make your way through this really dangerous veil back to safety on your own, essentially with like very little vision. And that's kind of what the story centers around. And it's a really like suspenseful story and the way they, the way they kind of build everything. And like you get, they include the way they've incorporated in kind of tutorials is really fascinating too, because you'll, you'll be playing a little bit and then you'll have a flashback of your uncle who kind of like wanted you to be able to defend yourself. So taught you basically how to use a sword and shield by sound. Um, and so you, that's kind of how you learn the controls. So they give you time to practice and I'm going on about it, but like, it's just a very unique experience. And that's why I want to bring it up because that's another way in which accessibility benefits everyone is you get games that probably otherwise wouldn't have been thought of an experience that is truly unique to probably a lot of us. I've got one that, uh, even though I called it out earlier, I feel like I need to go a little deeper on on just exactly how amazing the accessibility options are. Great. Um, because uh, Guardians of the Galaxy did a lot of, of accessibility options, right? I've 2021 was things. a good year for accessibility. Same year uh, The Veil came out. Yay! Um, it really was. It's... <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we talked a little bit about all the text customization, but that... That doesn't even necessarily say like, you know, the the full gamut of it because there's everything from being able to turn on um, subtitles for overheard conversations as well um, to oh, add that immersion wow. uh, to players. That's um, nice. You can uh, tweak how long objectives stay on the screen. So if people need that constant reminder of the objective, you can just say, "Leave it on there. I'm never going to not need it." Um, I won't can... remember that. Oh heck. <laughs> You can twitch, switch between closed captions and, and um, 
subtitles without the actual closed caption stage direction. You can, heck, you can have a, uh, activate a mode that lessens all unimportant sounds. It softens all of those and keeps only the, the mission critical ones at full volume oh, for so people nice. who get overwhelmed by environmental sound. Were there any other features you were thinking of besides like sound? Uh, it's also one of those games that has the the QTE customization, like I spoke about before. Mm-hmm. It's got things baked in to the um, uh, to the game itself, like how your visor is this this. It outlines everything important for you in yes. very <laughs> distinct high contrast colors. Um, the can I interact with this outline? Yes, always incredibly useful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. It's, it's also got, you know, maybe the, the most sterling feature it's got is how it handles difficulty. Um, because basically its difficulty is a huge set of sliders. You can tweak anything and everything in the game. Like, you can drop cooldowns to nothing um, is, is like how granular it, <laughs> it gets. Um, That's impressive. But since that can be overwhelming in and of itself, it's still got predefined difficulty settings. And when you cycle through them, it shows you what those bars do and difficulty that tells you exactly what this difficulty does. That's rare. Mm -hmm. And Um, it's got all these things together. (laughs) Yes. It's amazing, amazing, complete package for accessibility. And I've heard it's just like overall a fun game too. Oh, it genuinely is. (laughs) Which proves the point of like accessibility is not here to make games less hard to play. Or I mean, less fun to play. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. It, it was one of the, you know, the most popular games to come out, like one of the most popular superhero games in the last however many years. And um, it still managed to be one of the most accessible games of the year while, while it's at it. All right. Any other games, any other shout outs? I mean, one shout out that I would like to bring to it isn't one particular game, but the a uh, small dedicated modding community for Steam where there are people who are actively trying to make mods for games to make sure that they're more playable. Mm. Um, one game that I would that comes up to the top of my head is Stardew Valley. There are so many different mods for that game, but a lot of them are just making it easier for people to play and um, certain ways to modify the game so that you can take it on your own pace. And the fact that Concerned Ape has actively embraced these mods is always a nice thing to see Mm -hmm. that particularly for him, since he's the only one making the game, he's fully admitted that he can't do everything that people want, but he's more than happy to have people modify his game to make it so that they can make it something that is playable for them. Yeah, and there's kind of like a long-standing like the the mods community has generally been supportive. Definitely, um, when I was sort of looking into this and like covering it, kind of for an OT research, like I, it it was impressive just like how many requests for certain abilities and like certain things to be changed and help like the mod community was more than happy to, you know, create what people needed to be able to play these games in a lot of cases. 
it's an impressive shift in that community over recent years because yeah you know mods were almost exclusively the purview of making dragons into macho man randy savage <laughs> for, a, for a long time but right for fun it's like <laughs> but what now ridiculous it's about, thing we do <laughs> it's about no let's let's fix the games let's give them the options that they need let's allow people to get the experience regardless of their their needs out of yeah this. and that's heck. so cool to see yeah it really is like heck i mean you've got the accessibility angle, but just like, let's make this game more playable for everyone. Let's fix these bugs has happened a lot too recently. Uh, not to mention, you know, while, while we're sitting on kind of the PC side, uh, controller support, mm-hmm. like skyrocketing up. So you can either use your keyboard or a controller so that no matter what your needs are um, or what, what your preferences are, you can play it how you want mm-hmm. <laughs> or how you need. Yes. Excellent. Do we want to bring up some resources that people can look at? Yes. Um, So when talking about accessibility, I think the number one most important takeaway um, that I would like people to have is to follow the community, listen to the community, see what people who use these features are saying. Um, And so in that spirit, I've got a list of resources and these are going to go in the show notes um, along with a piece that Wes wrote about triangle and colorblindness. Um, But these are just kind of like all purpose sort of places to look for game reviews. Uh, Some of them cover hardware. Some of them do menu deep dives, which is pretty neat to really kind of look at those granular accessibility features, which ones are there, which ones aren't, are they appropriate for the specific game and like the gameplay? Um, so I'm going to read them off, but they'll also be in the show notes. Um, there's can I play that.com and gameaccessibility.com, um, dagger system.com, which has merged with, can I play that? but you can find resources on both and then ability powered. And I would also just, if you have a specific condition that you're curious about or a specific way of playing games, chances are if you, you can look on YouTube, you can look on Twitch and chances are someone is doing reviews or streaming or discussing how to game with that particular condition or in those particular circumstances. So seek that out. On that note, do you mind if I go wildcard a little here and add uh, one more oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> resource to mm-hmm. the list here? Um, so something that I've found incredibly helpful in recent years uh, is the Family Gaming Database at TamingGaming.com. Um, you know, you, you look at the name and you think this is just okay. Is it checking if uh, this game is okay for my kids? Um, which it does that, but it, it handles basically any needs. Uh, there are curated lists on that page, and they're everything from... Um, branching stories with multiple endings, just basic gameplay things, but there's also uh, designed for gamers with autism, uh, games without violence, uh, games designed for players without sight or easier navigation. Like every accessibility need you can think of, they're constantly making and updating these lists. Uh, And in fact, all of those are kind of categorized in the database so that you can add in your own needs and get (laughs) tailor-made suggestions served up to you. Um, That's great. Highly, highly recommended. Yeah, get me the link and I'll make sure that is on the list. Will do. Bringing us back in. So 
Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate the conversation and hopefully this has given our listeners a lot to think about as well. Um, so for some housekeeping, um, as far as upcoming episodes, um, we've got Tales of Zilia coming up next week, basically. And in August, Retro is going to be playing uh, Final Fantasy Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> and be sure to listen to our other podcasts as well. Random Encounter, which is about news and kind of current, currently playing games. Um, and Rhythm Encounter, which is our music podcast, uh, which is a, an interesting mix of kind of composer-focused episodes, theme-focused episodes, and sometimes we do uh, different gaming systems as well. Now let's talk about getting in touch with us. So I'll go to the panel first. What's the best way to reach you, Wes? Uh, best way is to find me on Twitter, at Wes Iliff. Uh It might be a mistake to follow me, but uh, you can do so anyways. <laughs> Never. Yeah. <laughs> I would follow you. All right. How about you, Lucy? Uh, easiest uh, places to find me are um, Twitter, uh, at Jess Idris, um, and uh, Tumblr as well. Same uh, handle, uh, J-E-S-I-D-R-E-S. And, uh, I mean, I'm the demon of social, uh, of the social media team. If you need me, I come calling. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and as for me, um, I'm Hillary. Uh, the best way to reach me, um, is discord. I am EP fire there. Um, love to talk about accessibility. Um, also, you know. If you happen to want to discuss Shadow Hearts, I know we mentioned it. I, I think that's either Wes or I, to be fair. Or me. Or and both. Lucy. Like everyone. Everyone involved. Everyone on this panel. Okay, yes. I mean, most of our PG fan as well. <laughs> Except for those of us who haven't played them. How do And they? well, that's only because they haven't played them. Poor souls. Yes. <laughs> um, Sadly, that's a game that is not particularly accessible, so. Yeah, yeah uh, I could have a few words on that one, but I'd rather yeah. not because I love the games. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's something we we probably should mention is that no matter how much we talk about accessibility, we fully admit that there are games that we absolutely adore that aren't always going to be the most accessible for everybody. And that's okay. Right. It's just doing the best with what you have. Exactly. Um. Okay. So to also feel free to email to retro at rpgfan.com. You can also reach rpgfan on Twitter, rpgfancom, Instagram, same thing. Um, and please don't forget to, you know, rate us, leave feedback on your, uh, your podcast listening method of choice. Uh, that really helps us. So deeply appreciate it and be sure to visit the the site rpgfan.com as well we've got lots of reviews lots of really wonderful things going on there too episode 335 that's a lot of episodes of retro um congrats Salosi. <laughs> Salosi! <laughs> thank you all so much for listening and joining us today and i think i will steal some words from him and say good night and good luck 
He stole it first. 